Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Discussing Disparities. My name is Pranav Kancharla, co-founder of Health Needs Rx. If you're new to our website, we're an organization with a, miss- with a mission to mitigate healthcare disparities through educational video content and information guides on essential topics like chronic diseases, mental health, respiratory illness, health literacy, and more to help people optimize their health. We strive to spur discussion on health disparities and state them today through our blog, Medquity and This Very Podcast. On this episode of Discussing Disparities, I'm joined by Dr. Hassan, an associate professor in the schools of kinesiology and public health, and the director of the Childhood Disparities Research Laboratory at the University of Michigan, who will talk more about disparities in childhood obesity. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So what sparked your interest in this field of research? So I've always been interested in physical activity as a way to promote health. Uh, I was a student athlete both in high school and in college, and I majored in kinesiology. And uh, I went from wanting to use exercise to enhance my sports performance to then transitioning to, well, how can I use exercise to improve my own health? And then looking around in the communities uh, that I served and worked in, even as a grad student, I realized that everyone needs to have an equal opportunity to be more physically active. Um, But many of those opportunities have gone away um, and it's really affecting our children in a negative way as we see the weight status going up as physical activity opportunities and the uh, opportunities to eat a healthy, nutritious diet are Uh, decreasing over time. And so this really became a time and an interest of mine. And at the same time, we also saw a lot of media attention with First Lady Michelle Obama, who was doing the whole Let's Move campaign. So I think because of the national attention and my own personal interest in physical activity, um, those two things intersected to really help me stay and thrive in this area of research. Yeah, that's so awesome. Can you give us a brief summary of your research in disparities in childhood obesity? Yeah, so a lot of times, folks, uh, when we think about excess weight and what are ways to prevent excess weight, we usually only focus on individual health behaviors. So are you eating less than uh, the calories that you're burning? We always talk about energy in, energy out. Well, we're more interested in seeing what are the factors that shape those behaviors. Um, And independent of those behaviors, what are factors in our environment, in our social and physical environment, that can have a direct impact on our uh, metabolic health? So things that we've identified are stress. So stress is a huge factor that, and many of us, particularly in this COVID environment, are exposed to a lot of stress. And stress can uh, make both a child and an adult less uh, willing to exercise uh, because of stress just makes you feel bad and you don't want to engage in physical activity. Or there may be a lot of different things that are going on in your life that uh, exercise become goes on the back burner and it's the last thing that you're thinking about. We also know that stress can influence eating behaviors. And so you're more likely to eat high sugary, high fat foods when you are stressed out. It can disrupt sleep and disrupted sleep is associated with inflammation that can also lead to excess weight. Um, We know that living in certain communities, so if you live in a low-income community where there aren't sidewalks, where there aren't grocery stores on every corner, this can also make the decision to choose the healthier option a more difficult 
uh, option. We also know that factors like being exposed to racial discrimination or community violence, both of those factors can dis dysregulate uh, stress processes. So our research really just focuses on what are those social and environmental factors that uh, produce uh, increased weight gain, that produce disparities, and then what can we do about it? We're not interested in just only studying the problem. We also want to find solutions. And so we work with school teachers, PE teachers, uh, principals, superintendents to figure out what are ways in which we can infuse healthier habits into the school environment, primarily through physical activity. So um, going back to what you were talking about, like, you know, with stress and other factors that you were discussing, what are some of the other causes of like pediatric obesity? Um, and also like characteristically, like how long does it persist for? Does it like go into adulthood as well? Yeah, so let me address the second question first. We do have uh, data that suggests that um, obesity does track into adulthood. So if you are uh, have excess weight as a young kid or as an adolescent, a teenager, um, that it is more likely that you will um, continue to carry excess weight um, into your emerging adult and older adult years. Um, but as a child and as a youth, they're still growing. And so there are many opportunities to change the trajectory of uh, weight throughout the course of growth and development. Um, so there are factors that we can, that we have identified like physical activity, reducing stress, uh, getting enough sleep, uh, eating a healthy, nutritious diet, all of these behavioral factors can help to change that trajectory. Um, but as we mentioned before, thinking about children's environment, so thinking about things that don't directly influence behavior, but that can like stressors in a child's environment, how they cope with that stress can also be an important factor that influences or predicts childhood obesity. So I think in addition to figuring out what the individual or what the parent can do to help the child, also think about what are those factors in their environment that may also be influencing not only the child's health, but their parents' health as well. So off of those risk factors, are there like certain age groups that are more at risk, like specifically like adolescent children? Um, in that's a great question. So yes, there are these what we call critical periods throughout growth and development that can put you at increased risk for obesity, increased risk for type 2 diabetes. So between the ages of uh, two and six, three and six, we have what's called adiposity rebound. That is the time when young, young kids, uh, toddlers, are when their weight starts to catch up with their height. And if that occurs at an earlier age compared to a later age, um, that increases a child's risk for childhood obesity throughout those uh, childhood and adolescent years. We also know that puberty, um, the time at which a child begins puberty or, um, that, or uh, menses, that that can also have an influence on childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes risk. We naturally become more resistant to the effects of insulin during those adolescent years, so um, which increases our risk for type 2 diabetes. But if you're active, if you're eating a healthy, nutritious diet, um, your, your um, insulin levels will go back down to normal um, as you age because we don't do know that insulin helps to stimulate growth. But if you, if you pair that 
uh, that period of insulin resistance during puberty, with that's also a transitional time when kids are exposed again to a lot of stress. You have the stress of school, you have the stress of body changes, you have the stress of peers, you have the stress of parents. Um, and then also having fewer physical activity opportunities and maybe engaging in more uh, stress eating behaviors, that can create a perfect storm that increases your risk, not only for obesity, but also increases your risk for type two diabetes and long-term cardiovascular risk. So we pay a lot of attention to those emerging adolescent years because we have identified, scientists have identified these periods in which you are at increased risk for obesity um, compared to other ages. Yeah, that's very interesting to know. And I know earlier you alluded to um, racial differences as well. So what um, racial ethnic disparities are present in childhood obesity and what sort of environmental factors contribute to this difference? Yes, yeah, so we do see, it's interesting because we do see quite a few disparities or differences in how uh, obesity manifests itself in different populations. We know that where an individual holds their adiposity or fat tissue um, can have an impact important influence on uh, their uh, metabolic health. So we know that African-Americans, they tend to hold their fat right under their skin. We call that they have more subcutaneous fat, whereas our uh, non-Latino white and Latino adolescents and adults tend to have more visceral fat, the fat that's right around your organs. Um, we do know that Latino and African-American youth tend to have more adiposity, again, because of fewer opportunities to engage in physical activity, fewer opportunities to engage in or consume a healthy and nutritious diet. We know that African-American and Latino youth also tend to uh, attend schools where they're less likely to have physical education, um, engage in recess, and so there's just fewer opportunities for them to be physically active. But we also know that these youth are exposed to much more stress. So factors, again, like racial discrimination, exposure to living in uh, com uh, communities that may have higher rates of community violence, um, living in lower income neighborhoods, that uh, all of these different environmental stressors can have an independent effect on childhood obesity through stress pathways, and they can also influence dietary behaviors. So thinking not only about the biology, but the behavior and the environment all together, all of these factors create these different disparities that we see in childhood obesity. So um, what are some of the long-term consequences of childhood obesity and adolescent obesity? Like, I know you were talking about like uh, type two diabetes and other um, uh, conditions. So like, what are the other uh, long-term consequences? Yeah, so uh, there was a study that was uh, uh, put out or put forth back in 2012 that really looked at that question. And Nike did a whole campaign around designing to move because we are understanding that the long-term consequences of obesity have dramatic effects, deleterious effects on uh, the adult health as children grow and they continue to maintain this higher weight status throughout their lifespan. This is actually the first generation that is expected to live a shorter lifespan compared to their parents based on the excess weight that um, some of them are carrying. 
Um, we also know that uh, childhood obesity can, not only does it result, can, can it result in shorter life expectancy, but lower quality of life as well as we think about um, increased risk for type 2 diabetes, increased risk for and prevalence of uh, cardiovascular disease, stroke. Um, so almost any disease that is associated with obesity, um, even different types of rheumatoid arthritis, uh, Alzheimer's disease, all of these different diseases are probably are projected to be in greater uh, prevalence as a function of carrying excess weight for a longer period of time. Now, we don't like to scare individuals and tell them, oh no, look at all these health problems that are coming, because the goal is really not to focus on weight when we thought, think about or talk about childhood obesity. It really is about focusing on he developing healthy habits at a long at a younger age that they can carry into their adult years. So in our programs, we rarely talk about weight. Um, and some people may like that, some people may not. Um, we really try to focus on, uh, step away from the scale and really focus on developing those healthy sleep habits, developing, um, you know, making a healthier choice as it comes to food, uh, drinking more water instead of soda, and making sure that you are getting enough physical activity throughout the day. And as we continue to make these lifestyle modifications and make the healthier choice, um, then we know that uh, there is, um, there will be positive health consequences that can influence or impact the health of children as they uh, transition to adulthood. Yeah, it's really amazing the kind of like uh, consequences that can happen um, from childhood obesity. And thank you for talking a lot about that. Um, so I guess going off of that, how can we use these findings to help schools combat this issue? Uh, that's a great question. So I've been doing a lot of work in this area for the last five or six years to really help schools provide physical activity opportunities um, uh, to all children in an equitable fashion so that all kids have the opportunity to live health and healthy and successful lives. We know that schools, uh, children spend probably the majority of their waking hours at school. Now this has changed a bit with the COVID pandemic as many schools are doing more online learning. But when we were back in person, uh, particularly for children who live in low income communities, 75% of their calories that they consumed was at school. And we also know that most of the structured physical activity opportunities like physical education, recess, uh, sports, uh, classroom activity breaks, all of these opportunities are offered at school. So when we think about school, schools have the tremendous, tremendous opportunity to really level the playing field as it relates to physical activity and nutrition opportunities. Um, so my job as a professor, as a childhood obesity researcher, is to figure out what is a feasible way, a creative way, an innovative way to allow schools to pre, uh, become, uh, develop a culture of health and become a, the most healthy environment that children uh, can engage in during their waking hours. So we've done this by working with school teachers, classroom teachers, and helping them infuse 
20 minutes of health enhancing physical activity in their classrooms. Even now during the COVID pandemic, we have worked with PE teachers to develop free available videos that uh, any child, any teacher, any parent can access uh, on our Vimeo channel. Um, so I think by creating working with schools, not mandating, not enforcing, not telling them what they should do, but understanding what are the resources that are available at different schools and how can we partner with schools to help create healthy environments for not only the students, but the teachers as well. Yeah, that's so amazing that you're partnering with schools to create such wonderful content. It would be super insightful and like resourceful for kids. Um, and then now specifically dealing with like systemic racism, how can communities actively combat this issue, especially in regards to like childhood obesity? Yes. So that is a, that's the million dollar question right there that I think a lot of people, A, they have become more aware of the issue of systemic racism and have uh, become, you know, are really trying to develop some action points on where are those points in which we can um, make an impact. I think we have to understand that, again, when we're thinking about childhood obesity, this is not just an individual level problem, that this is a population-based problem as we see population changes in, uh, in our weight status, particularly among ethnic minority youth. I think another thing that we have to understand is that these structural barriers, things like racial discrimination, has a direct impact on health. So for some examples of structural racism, because sometimes people are still confused by what does that mean? Uh, we know that historically that different neighborhoods have different resources that were available to them. So when you think about low income or ethnic minority neighborhoods, how many of them actually have public swimming pools? How many of them have continuous sidewalks? How many of those neighborhoods have physical activity resources available to them? Um, when we see these systematic patterns of physical activity opportunities not being available in different communities, that is a form of residential racial discrimination um, where resources or access to physical activity resources are not available. If you think about it from a nutrition standpoint, if you look at low income or ethnic minority neighborhoods, um, how many grocery stores are present in those neighborhoods and communities? And if you go into those grocery stores, how many, what is the cost of the vegetables and the healthy food compared to the high fat, high sugary foods? The, and the quality of those fruits and vegetables isn't the same as you would see in high-income neighborhoods. So all of these uh, are, are all of these different uh, lack of resources are evidence of patterns of structural inequities that contribute to not only childhood obesity but obesity in entire communities in the adult population as well. So how do we reverse some of these trends? Well, when you're thinking about population health. The answer isn't individual solutions. It has to take community effort. It has to take statewide policies. So how do we develop policies and laws um, that prohibit this form of uh, discrimination and that actually improve, increase access to healthy resources across all communities? Um, so that is one way, as we look at it from a childhood obesity lens, how do we create, uh, how do we identify how structural racism is influencing opportunities to be healthy? And then what are the programs and policies that we need to develop and implement 
Um, and again, speaking with the community members on how to do that so that we can change or reverse the tide of childhood obesity, particularly in communities that had the highest rates of childhood obesity. Yeah, thank you so much for talking more about like structural racism specifically, like with residential segregation and things like that. I feel like it's so important to talk about these issues because they can often go unnoticed. So thank you so much for talking about that. I also know that you were the director of um, the Active Schools and Communities Program. And would it be possible for you to talk a little bit more about this initiative and its impact? Sure. So Active Schools and Communities was started this year. Um, it's through the Exercise Sports and Science Initiative through the University of Michigan. And we recognized that there was a lot of people at Michigan that were doing work around physical activity, but we needed to centralize that um, so that we could all be working together and not in silos to really make an uh, impact in communities. Yes, we do do research, but the, the focus of this uh, this program or this unit within ESSE is really to, you know, translate, uh, develop these, um, develop, translate the research that we're doing into classroom and community practice. So through those programs, that's how we have developed uh, impact at home. So that's interrupting prolonged sitting with activity at home. And we form this coalition of different organizations to help us promote physical activity at home uh, during this COVID pandemic. Uh, we're working with state legislatures on uh, getting funding for the program and uh, working with principals and teachers through impact at school um, to really create foundational, do the foundational work to that so that classroom physical activity breaks, uh, physical education recess can all be implemented in an equitable way across our school districts. So the long answer to your short question is really, it is a coalition of both researchers, uh, community members, teachers, uh, state organizations that are really interested in promoting youth physical activity first and then we'll transition across the lifespan and how can we use pool our resources together to really make an impact on children's health and well-being yeah that's so amazing that you guys are like creating all this content and working with schools to create all this change that's so wonderful um what sort of policies at the local and state levels can help mitigate these disparities as well yeah, so that's, again, that's another million dollar question. So I think that there are, there's not going to be one universal policy or solution. It is going to come in the form of many different uh, policies, many different solutions. Um, in our state, the school districts have a lot of autonomy, although there are these overarching guidelines and laws and policies that come down from the state, from the Michigan Department of Education, school districts really have a lot of autonomy on how how they implement those policies because we have such a diversity in this state. We have urban areas, we have suburban areas, we have rural areas, um, we have internet access, we don't, even as they are implementing COVID guidelines. We have some schools that are hybrid, some schools that are um, in-person, some schools that are completely virtual. And so I think when we think about, uh, you know, what is a policy or a law, you really do need a lot of community input to make a community impact. Um, and I think that uh, some things that we can think about uh, right off the bat that is easy, well, it's not easy to implement, but it's a low hanging fruit 
is thinking about um, when these budget cuts come, how do we ensure that physical education and health is not on the cutting block? How do we make sure that these two curricula uh, are a central piece of um, the school curriculum. Now, you know, it's not for us to dictate to each school district how they should use their resources, but for us, it's important for us to emphasize and advocate knowing that a healthy child is always going to learn better. A healthy child is going to be much more successful in a school than a child that has fewer um, opportunities to engage in healthy behaviors. And these curriculums help to teach that, especially as we start thinking about uh, um, the whole child and dealing with social emotional health, particularly during these stressful times. The universe, uh, excuse me, the state of Michigan has actually done a really great job in developing uh, the Michigan model, which is a health curriculum that is implemented in about 85% of the schools. And so thinking about not only just developing new policies, but how do we um, maintain the policies and how do we have successful implementation of the policies that already exist? Um, how do we make sure that the policies that we have on board related to physical education are not eliminated or replaced? Um, so that those are going to be important issues as well to think about. So I think a lot of what we are dealing with is um, not necessarily making new policies, but really thinking about how do we sustain funding? How do we sustain the policies that are already available and make sure that they are implemented successfully so that all kids have an opportunity to live a healthy and successful life? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I just know that it's super important, like you were saying, to you know have community involvement. So yeah, absolutely, that's super essential. So now going into like more healthcare end, how could these findings assist healthcare providers in delivering better healthcare? So I think that with uh, understanding now, particularly during this COVID time, we are going to see, and we are already seeing significant increases in children's body weight as a function of um, the increased stress, the food insecurity that is emerging, and the fewer physical activity opportunities that are available to children. When schools shut down, PE was dramatically changed, recess was uh, essentially eliminated, classroom activity breaks were gone, and it was projected that there was going to be a 2% increase nationwide in childhood obesity. I think we're seeing in certain places that that's even greater. So children are coming back to their wellness visits at the uh, clinic and at the hospital um, for their flu shots, for just their wellness checks, uh, 10, 20, 25 pounds heavier than they were back in March. Now these are individual cases. This is probably not uh, everyone is increasing weight at this time, but I think that may putting uh, continuing to put childhood obesity on the forefront of individuals' minds to promote these healthy habits. Helping parents understand what can they do and how can they help to change that tide is gonna be very important that, um, you know, childhood obesity, there are things that we can do from a parenting perspective, um, from an individual perspective to help with that. And I think the doctors, uh, the medical physicians are the individuals that parents trust the most. So the information that they are giving to the parents on how to successfully reduce stress, or maybe even referring them to other individuals to help them reduce stress. 
by referring them to um, exercise programs or uh, a nutritionist that can really help in terms of help giving the parents and the child things that they can control in their own environment. And I think that's what our medical professionals do is that they empower the individual to uh, make healthy choices and make healthy decisions. Whereas our lawmakers are uh, empowering communities to change the opportunities or increase the opportunities that are available to everyone. So as we all work together, we can both at the medical doctor's office and in the community and through policy and schools and legislation, we can create these healthy environments, not only for children, but for entire families. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. That was our last question. It was really insightful to learn more about these disparities. And thank you so much for educating our audience on childhood uh, obesity. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing light to the attention to this area. This is a really important area, particularly at this time. And I think that uh, young, wonderful individuals like yourself who are making an impact by having these pods and raising awareness will is contributing to the solution of uh, reducing uh, childhood obesity in our state and across the nation.